From one islander to another, Isle of Wight Radio proudly presents John Hannam Meets. Actually, I met my guest today right back in 1999 in Guildford. <laughs> <laughs> name's Charlie Lansborough. I was recommended to see you by some people from the Isle of Wight who God followed you him. around. <laughs> and they <laughs> said, he's at Guildford, go and see him. <laughs> That's where we first met, Charlie. That's incredible. I didn't realise it was that long, John. 20 it's years lo- ago. Lovely to see you again, yeah. You've still got a lot more hair than me as well. I'm very <laughs> envious. It's getting very thin, though, John. But you had long hair before people had long hair, didn't you? I did. I don't know what it was. Somebody said to me once, when did you think up this image? So I sat in a darkened room and thought, I know, I'll grow my hair. And what I think it is, I think as a kid, I loved the stories about the knights and I loved the stories of the Old Testament. And they all seem to have long hair. And with an angular face like mine, I need all the help I can get. So I'm trying to hide as much as possible, with (laughs) with as much hair as possible. But uh, it doesn't matter in the end, John. I saw an old cassette uh, cover with you on and looking completely different. Still longish hair, but (laughs) thin face. It was a bit darker then. It was. It was a bit darker. Yeah. So welcome back to the Isle of Wight. And, um, well, this is a farewell tour. Is it going to be a farewell tour? It is. I'm not one of those, you know, like old blue eyes is back again or old brown eyes in my, or bloodshot eyes in my case sometimes. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I th- still hope to do the odd occasional one-off, which I'm doing one in December. Uh, and it'd be lovely to see all the lads again. I mean, I thoroughly enjoy what I do. I've got a great crowd around me. The band are great friends of mine. The crew are lovely people. And it would be a shame to step away and never see them again uh, and not to experience the music again and meet the lovely people that I've met through the music. Charlie, you've been gigging for God, well over 50 years, haven't you? Including yeah. the, the pubs yeah. in the early days. Yeah, I did one pub for 22 years uh, in the dockside of Birkenhead, you know. And uh, when I despaired of my musical fairy godmother coming and delivering me this musical life that I wanted, I started to write and that's what eventually brought the success. But uh, yeah, but I enjoyed all of that. People have this misconception that all of those years I'd be, you know, gnashing my teeth in and bemoaning my fate, but playing the pubs and everything. I met wonderful people who are still my friends to this day, and I wouldn't have missed it for the world, you know. You get more than a pound a night now, don't you? <laughs> well, I hope so. It'll <laughs> be murder of a dog. Yeah. That's what I started off with. You well researched. That was a pound a night in the yeah. pub I played in, yeah. Amazing, isn't it? You've been doing theatres, I guess, for about 25 years now, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, it was, that was quite frightening, you know, and I got this break because I went straight from playing little pubs and occasional little country music clubs. Suddenly this whole success thing blew up and I went straight from those little pubs to suddenly being thrust into these wonderful theatres. Uh, so it was terrifying. And, of course, I think one of the first gigs I ever did was in the Gaiety in Dublin and I was top of the Irish charts and the place was chock-a-block I was sat at the front, the band was in darkness about 10 yards back, so it was like me against the world, and I came off at the end of the night uh, sort of shaking with relief and euphoria that it had gone okay, you know. But uh, yeah, it was quite a transformation in my musical life. One of the stories that fascinates me is that you played a gig in uh, Liverpool, I think, and years later you went back to another gig about a mile away. The first gig there were about 15 people. The second gig, many years later... 4,000 people. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's how uh, crazy this business can be. I mean, I played one pub there in Merseyside. He said, will you come and play on Thursday night? There was four people in there, 
and two of them was me and my wife, and the other two were a friend and his wife. And at the end of the night, I was only getting like 30 quid, and I gave the boss 15 quid back. He said, what are you doing? I said, I can't take that, mate. There was nobody here. He said, well, nobody's ever done that before. And then they rejigged it and uh, asked me to come back once the success had broken. And he said, come on a Monday night and we'll give you £600. I couldn't do it, obviously, but uh, I thought, what a transformation from 15 quid to, to 600 you know. Because you're a Welshman, really, aren't you? Were you born in Wrexham? I was born in Wrexham, but I'm a war baby, as anybody can see by looking at me, John. <laughs> uh, my mother was taken there. I was born and brought straight back to the bomb, so I never really understood the logic in that. But uh, my ancestry is um, a bit of Scottish, a bit of Irish, a bit of Welsh, and I've just done one of these ancestry things, and I'm a huge percentage English, which surprised me, 78, which is remarkable. I think I'm 14% of something Irish and Welsh and Scottish, 6.5% uh, Eastern European and 1% Middle East, and I think that must be the nose, John, the middle. <laughs> but uh, no, I'm very glad of my heritage, you know, and um, I grew up in the dockside of Birkenhead in a house, as I've told you before, full of animals. We had chickens and dogs and cats, and we had a monkey at one stage, and uh, it was chaotic but wonderful. It was full of music and it was full of love, you know. You had one of the first pairs of jeans to be seen this side of the Atlantic, didn't you? Is that right? <laughs> well, that was uh, my brother, Jack, sailed to uh, Canada. And it was, uh, I think it was winter. And uh, all of, he was a very young man there. And everybody was going ashore, you know, celebrating. And the captain on the ship said, where are you going, son? And he said, nowhere. He said, you come with me, son. And he took him home to this wonderful house and... Uh, they became great friends of our family, and every so often they would send us a package. It's probably some of it was like second hand, maybe, but to us it was fantastic. And we'd get these wonderful parcels from Canada, uh, thanks to my brother Jack and, that, and the captain. So, yeah, wonderful little things like that sort of uh, brightened your life and made it feel like Christmas a few times over. They called you Perso, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. No, very good, because, <laughs> yeah, because I hated getting a bath. Yeah. And I remember my mum shouting me for a bath and I hid, there was a big basket full of clothes and I thought, I'm not getting in the bath. So I hid under all the clothes till all the commotion had died away and then I came out, you know. Yeah, personal I was. <laughs> I I'm changed old John, I do get a bath now. You know? Yes, <laughs> you look good actually. <laughs> well, we're both still here, that's the main thing, John. Yeah, mate, it? which is fantastic. What I like about you is you had a tough start and it was a tough place, Birkenhead, and you went off the rails, if you like, and you came back. You've, you've had a wonderful life. You must be so thrilled that how you overcame the start of your life and, uh, and have been yeah, so... Yeah, I, mean, uh, I mean, I've done a whole succession of jobs you know all about. Mm. I was a postman in Coventry. I was down and out in Coventry. I worked on the railways, the flour mills. I was a quality control engineer. I was in the army. And all the way along the line was this musical backdrop to what I was doing, you know. But it was a great sort of education in life. And those things, like getting into trouble, I mean, I'm ashamed to say that I did. But it, was, it taught me something. I thought, no, that's not. And my family were all so upright and honest. So I, they must have, what's our Charlie gone and done? And I was in Walton Jail for two months for p sort of petty theft. And I always remember the day they took me to, to the quarter sessions. And I was handcuffed to one of these wardens. And uh, as we were going there, they played two songs. One of them was Don't by Elvis Presley, which was very appropriate. <laughs> and the other one was Every Time You Say Goodbye by Ella Fitzgerald. <laughs> and I thought, I hope this is not a, a foretaste of things to come. 
But they released me, and I, and that was the last sort Never of looked back, did you? No, and I, I used to then go and preach to the young lads on the corner and say, listen, lads, don't take any notice of those older fellas who are trying to get you into trouble. Stay away, it's not worth it, you know. Was it sort of bravado? Did you try and, and did you go off the rails because people expected you to be a bit like that or not really? Yeah, there was a bit of that, and my mother had died. It was the focal point of my whole life, and I was only uh, 12 or something, and my whole sort of world sort of shattered because she was there all the time. And then to become a, a member of the local fraternity, if you like, you had to either be a hard case or a thief. And I, I could never make a hard case, as you can see, by looking at me. So I did some petty thieving to be one of the lads, you know, which was, and it was hilarious, really. I remember pinching, I mean, this sounds terrible, doesn't it, from my our forever friend, I preached the gospel, and I love <laughs> the almighty, you know. But I had all this stuff hidden in the dog's kennel. Well, little stupid things, like uh, I had a bottle of port or something and a few other odds and pieces. And uh, my sister-in-law, who didn't like me anyway, with good reason, was washing in the kitchen. She looked out and a dog came out the kennel. She thought, that looked with a box of black magic in its mouth, with all the cellophane on. She thought, that looks new, that. And then she carried on washing. Next minute, it come out with a, a box full of big biro pens, which it was chewing. <laughs> And they come out and discovered my cash hidden in the kennel. Oh. I used to have to sleep in the kennel because the, my sister-in-law would lock me out. And that was great, provided it didn't rain. But if it rained, I'd be wet from the knees down, you know. So the stupid things that I did for a very short space of my life, people would get the impression I was a hardened cr criminal, <laughs> you know, <laughs> none of it. I love some of your early stories when you were a school teacher and you were uh, also singing. And sometimes the kids would say... Mum and Dad want you to sing, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, I'd get a request in the playground. A little kid would come up and say, please, uh, my mum said, would you sing crazy for her tonight in the pub? <laughs> I'll tell your mum, OK, I will. You know? <laughs> but it was, uh, that was a wonderful education. I mean, I went from being a navvy, and I was down a hole chipping away at a gas pipe in cold temperatures, and I thought, I can't be doing this when I'm 50-odd. And I was talking to my mate in the pub that night, and he said, Charlie, you had a good education, going for teaching. And I was surprised and amazed when they accepted me. I thought, this is going to be great. I did three years training. I thought, this is going to be an easy job, holidays and everything. It was the hardest job I ever did. But I met wonderful children, and I'm seeing now some lads are like six foot three. And I get lovely letters. I got one from the outback in Australia, this beautiful girl who was teaching Aboriginal children. And she said, I'll never forget what you did for me, sir. Now, I don't remember what wow. I did. But it meant something to her. And I've had a, I was in Belfast just recently, and a, a girl, must, must be about 40 now, came and said, you used to teach me, sir. I said, I hope I was good to you, sir. And she said, you were lovely, sir. We all loved you. So <laughs> thank God for that. But uh, no, I met wonderful staff and wonderful kids. I met some awful kids as well, mind you. But it was, uh, and some of the songs I wrote came from school assemblies. And sometimes you were late, Charlie, weren't you? <laughs> You're too well researched. <laughs> You're talking about when I did the Albert Hall. Yes. And uh, I, I used to sleep in the car in those days because we were hard up, me and my wife. And when I did gigs further afield, we'd sleep. We called it the Volvo Hotel. And a bit later, we, we went a bit posh and got a sleeping baggage which we sleep in. But that night, it was, we had a wonderful night in the Albert Hall. It was a, a country music festival. And we did our little stint. And on the way back, we pulled into Watford Gap and fell asleep in the car. And I woke up in the morning, late in the morning, and phoned the school. <laughs> and Mr. Fallows, the head, long-suffering head, I said, uh, I'm sorry, Doug. I said, I'll be late in today. I've slept in. 
He said, so we can be expecting you in like half an hour. I said, no, it'll be about two o'clock. He said, two o'clock, you've slept in. Where have you slept in? I said, in Watford Gap. And he went, oh, God, I might have known. <laughs> he, was, he was used to me by this time, you know, but he was a lovely man, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, you know all about me, John. I'm getting worried. You are, right. <laughs> in 1994, I know you, you never sort of gave up thinking you were going to make it, but you, you had a word with the Almighty, I think, didn't you? Yeah, I had many words with the Almighty. I became a, a Christian when I was, it was always sort of, I remember getting a story when I was in school as a primary school and I thought it was one of the most wonderful things I'd found it's good to be good and uh, it's good to be honest and uh, I'm going to live forever and I then my brothers who were wonderful people but none uh, not overtly Christian and never went to church said have you seen what Holy, Holy Joe's written here and they ridiculed it out of me and eventually it resurfaced when I was about 38 or something. And all the lads in the town, I know all the scoundrels, said, Charlie's gone round a bend, you know. <laughs> they said, it's only a passing fad, but the passing fad is still here. And after years of pleading with the Almighty to open a few doors for me, wouldn't this be good if you did that, Lord? You know, oh, that'd be good. In 94, I thought, I know, all right, Lord, I give up. I don't know why you gave me these musical gifts, because everywhere I turn, I get rejected. Uh, but I give in. If it's not to be, it's not to be. And if you want me to be a teacher in Birkenhead, I'll do it, Lord, but uh, you'll have to help me because I don't like it very much, you know. So I surrender. And it's almost as if from that surrender that the whole spiral of events began to take place, which culminated in uh, January of 95 and the Pat Kenny show. And I went to the top of the Irish charts the following week. So he was listening, but he just chose his time, not mine. That sort of song changed your life. That song, particular song, didn't it, about the blind boy? It did. That song, I sang two songs on the show. One was Forever Friend, which was, uh, mm. uh, you know, my sort of simplistic way of uh, speaking to the Almighty. And the other one was What Colour Is The Wind. And uh, I went home after a wonderful weekend in Dublin uh, and was greeted by my son, Jamie, who's with me today, with the news that I'd gone to the top of the Irish charts. And uh, that story, that, that one wonderful gift, that blind child was overheard saying that to the father. What colour is the wind, Daddy? And little did I realise the gift that she gave me when she said that, because that song changed my life, you know. Suddenly it was a hit all around, wasn't it? Great Britain and far afield, really. Well, it helped me. It opened all sorts of doors. And the nice thing is, if you're successful in Ireland, uh, which is strange because I was going there before success. I was invited by Foster and Alan, who were great friends of mine. And I remember talking in the little village there, saying to Pat Claffey, who's a great friend of mine, Pat has said, I love this country and its people. I said, have you ever got a break? I'd love to be here. I know it's not the biggest market in the world. In effect, that's exactly what happened. But what they do, the Irish ship you out all over the place. So when I got to Australia, all the Irish were there in force to, to support me and uh, they ship you to America and wherever the Irish are, if they like you, they like you, you know. You've had a fantastic run. You've sold, uh, well, loads, millions of records and had six uh, in the top 50 album charts. I know, it's all... I remember I despaired. When I despaired of anybody ever recording me, I paid to have a, a little cassette done. And my wife complained bitterly, saying, you're spending all that money, but you haven't got any money at all. You're <laughs> wasting it all on a cassette. And in effect, that cassette set the ball rolling. Uh, but little did I realise when I recorded that cassette that years later I'd have all these albums to my name and to the credits and uh, it's wonderful to look back and think well when I despaired I didn't realise that this would come to fruition like this 
my son Jamie, who I mentioned before, we'd be walking a dog, and when I despair, he'd say, do you think you'll ever make it, Dad? He was only a little kid. I'd say, eh, no, I don't think so, son. It's a bit late now. Then another day, I'd say, yeah, I think I will, son, you know. And uh, I think it was lovely to see uh, the pleasure, the reflected pleasure in my family and my lads and my wife and everything. When it did happen, they all thought, ah, Charlie did it in the end, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it was quite remarkable to get a break at 53 years of age because there's a lot of old people in the business, but they got a break when they were young. Mm. Not many people get a break in, a, in the business when they're 50-odd, you know. And Pat Boone did one of your songs, and Daniel O'Donnell recorded one of your songs. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And somebody once said to me, you can never consider yourself a proper songwriter till other singers uh, deem your songs good enough for them to record. And thankfully, uh, Foster and Alan, Daniel, yeah. uh, George Hamilton, yeah. lovely people. So, yeah, that gives you a great boost, and you think, well, maybe I can write a song, you know. You met one of the Everly brothers too, didn't you? I did, Don Everly, and, uh, mm. in Nashville, and I met John Prine there. I, I met, met George Hamilton introduced me on the, on the stage in the Opry, Charlie Pride, we met all sorts of... And what struck me was how nice they all were, because you hear these horror stories of people in the business, and all the people I met... Well, if I thought of anybody that I had a story about, I wouldn't tell you, but I'd have to scratch my head hard and long to try and think of a bad thing to say, and I wouldn't say it anyway. But nearly everybody I've met has been lovely, and I was very blessed when I went to Nashville to meet these people and to realise how gracious they were to me, because I was just a Charlie who never heard of him. <laughs> You've had a great time, really, haven't you? I have, yeah, in all sorts of shapes and forms, and I've met people... From all strata of society, all walks of life, characters here, there and everywhere. Uh, and I've got lots and lots of friends through the music. So part of my prayers every night, I say, thank you, Lord, for this gift, which I did nothing for, for the places it's taken me to and the wonderful people I've met through it and the pleasure, hopefully, I've given to others and I've received myself through this gift that you gave me. So, yeah, I've been very lucky and very blessed. Yeah. It's quite amazing... As you get older, you go to quite a few funerals, and some awesome. of your music is often favourites of someone that's passed on. And it's, it is, yeah. It's very touching when we listen to you in a crematorium. I know. Well, I've, that happens to me a lot because people who I know, when they pass away, I mean, I'll be going to my great friend's wife's funeral on this Wednesday when I get back, and uh, and one of my songs will be played at that. So it's... I mean, it will be heartbreaking because I love the woman uh, and I love her husband. And to hear my song sang, because about 10 days ago, she looked as right as rain, fit as a fiddle, and now she's gone. But, yeah, it's it's very, very sad. But. So, no more long tours then, Charlie Landsman? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I've enjoyed them. I mentioned the Australian one where I did uh, seven and a half weeks and enormous distances. Some days we'd be travelling six, eight, ten, and one journey was 12 hours in a car, you know. But it's the people that you meet along the way, and it's not like doing something you don't like. It's the, If you get a great pleasure out of what you do, then it's not half as hard as, you know. I mean, I think of people working all day, say, in Tesco's or something, think, you know, I wasn't I blessed that I'm not doing that, you know. At sure, this is something I love like what you do, John, you know. When you sit in front of an audience, you relax everyone and, and you're relaxed and it really works, doesn't it? Well, I think they come to realise that I'm just like them. I'm not a, and I don't mean it's not false humility, I, I, I'm not a star in, in that sort of sense. Some people have that sort of aura 
like Daniel and people on these great names. I'm just a lad from the back street of Birkenhead who loves what I do, love where it takes me. Uh, and they see that in me as just being an ordinary fella doing something, you know, slightly out of the ordinary. But I'm one of them, you know. I used to love Valdunican. And when, yeah. when I watched him, I used to watch him and I think... This looks so simple. So easy. <laughs> so easy. <laughs> but it's, but not. it's certainly not, is it? No, no, it certainly isn't. You know, and it's like the old, what is it, the old swan syndrome, where it looks all grace and everything on top and underneath sure. the feet are going like mad. But I've had many a night like that where I've been terrified, you know, and I'm not the most confident fellow in the world, but I think the good Lord's helped me through, you know. Just before you go, I know you've got a show to do in a minute, which I'm looking forward yeah. to. Future plans? You're going to make some more albums? I will, yeah. When I think I've written something decent, then I'll record I won't be pushed into putting stuff out there just for putting it out but when I write things that I think are good enough then I'll release that and I'll do these one-offs that I speak of and I'll then be able to go and see some of my friends performing and uh, I'll play some very bad golf John <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll carry on learning my languages and uh, I may be doing a bit of art and I'll do some charity work and maybe get a bit more involved with the church and I laughingly said my wife's got me enrolled in a better housekeeping course you know how to hoover with a smile on your face, yeah. you know. <laughs> I must say, you love the fans, and you're such a kind man. I would like to publicly thank you, because I lost my dear wife in 2006. I know, I know you did. And you rang me up at home, which I really thought was absolutely wonderful, and invited me to one of your shows, and uh, it was just a, a joy to be there, and I shed a tear, but I would do, but yeah. I'd, I'd just like to thank you, because you're a very caring man, Charlie Lansborough. You're a friend, John, you're a friend, and you're a kind man, and uh, you know, it shows, and you're, the way you present yourself, and the way you talk, you've got a lovely manner in dealing with people, and you relax people. If you were a singer, I'd be out of a job, John. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say it's a pleasure to know you, and I wish your career continued success, because I know you're not giving up, just no, giving up touring. So, <laughs> and uh, lots of luck in the future, Charlie. God bless you, John. It's been a real delight talking to you again. You're an old friend. You'll stay at being an old friend as long as I'm around and you're around. We'll be friends, mate. God bless you, John. Here's to the next time. Thanks, mate. <laughs> John Hannum, can't cook, won't cook, but what a sexy voice. That's a bit harsh, Ainsley. I can cook ready meals. Ding! It was a great thrill, as ever, to meet the wonderful Charlie Lansborough. I did enjoy his show, full of surprises. And also, by the way, he's got a brilliant new album called In the Attic. And the tour continues till May. Forthcoming dates include Weymouth, Cannock, Leamington Spa, Swansea, Worthing, Peterborough, York, Bridlington, Telford, Warrington, Lowestoft, Hereford, Crewe, St Albans, Swindon and finally Liverpool. You've been listening to John Hannah Meets, courtesy of Isle of Wight Radio. Don't forget to look at my website, johnhannam.com, for news of more interviews and how you might purchase my books. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.